رسالة إليه أسقيها من موجة شوقي أبقى أسقي في حلمي ومسافتي صحوي أسقي أسقي أطعمها أعناب دموعي أمنحها إيقاع خشوعي أسكنها كل مدائن قلبي لا أبقي أمضغها شفتي أشعاري سفني فرقي And that was Emily Drumsta reading from Nazik Malaika's A Letter to Him, as you heard. And this is episode 57 of the Bulak Pub podcast. I'm Marsha Links-Qualey coming to you from Rabat, Morocco. Emily is currently in Providence, Rhode Island. And Ursula, as usual, is in Amman, Jordan. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Um, so thank you uh, to Emily, who is our special guest today. She has um, a collection of, of work by uh, the Iraqi poet Nazik al-Malaika called Revolt of the Sun, coming out this month from Saqi Books. And she will continue reading to us from a letter to him, first in Arabic and then in English, because it is a dual language collection. Okay, here we go. سأغمس أسطرها بدواتي من عبراتي ونجيعي وفواصلها سيسجلها قلم من أحطاب دلوعي أبحرها سوف تضيعني لا أعرف غربي من شوقي ينكسر المجداف وأبحر دون قلوعي حبلي من حدب المنزوع صاريتي غيمة أحزان بيرق شوقي يا أمواج انشقي انشقي عن ساحرة وعروسي بحوري تمسحوا جرحي ودموعي اضمنوا أن أعبر كالبرق للشاطئ حيث حصاد نجومي وزروعي يا حبيبي أكتب تحت الليل رسالة حب والظلمة كلب وحشي يجدم قربي والريح تهب هل أكتبها بفمي؟ بفمي؟ أأريق على صفحات حروقي إعصاري وصراخ دمي؟ أأسور شوقي أم أرقي ورماد مسائي المحترقي؟ أم أسقيها عبرات تنزف من قلمي؟ Okay, and now I'll read from my translation, a letter to him. With longing washing over me, I water it, I water it. In dreams, in my expansive wakefulness, I water it. I feed it tears like grapes, give it the rhythm of escape and homes in all the cities of my heart, so that my lips, my poems, boats, and roads no longer gnaw at it. I'll plunge its lines into an inkwell filled with tears and blood. I'll punctuate it with a pen I fashioned from my ribs. I'll lose myself in meter till I can't tell east from west. I'll break my oar and put to sea, without a sail, my ropes plucked eyelashes, my mast a flag of love, plunged into clouds of woe. Part, part, you waves, show me a witch, a mermaid's flashing scales, 
to soothe these wounds and tears, and let me fly like lightning to the shore to harvest plants and stars. To my lover I write, under cover of night, when darkness is a wild dog crouched beside me, and the wind, should I write with my mouth, this mouth, pour out my flames, my pains, the screaming sound inside my blood onto its page? Should I depict my love, my sleeplessness, the evening's ash, or water it with ink tears as they plop out from my pen? Should I strew my soul's ruins, scatter my body's remains over the valleys of the page? No, no, it's not enough. None of this is enough. I'll be the words, I'll hide inside their ink. I'll be the mailman too. My eyelash or my arm will be the stamp. I'll write the address, lover's building, street of beating hearts. Return address? Madwoman trapped inside a labyrinth. Across a rainless, lightless, empty waste. I'll send my mail by air, so let the cold wind claw at me. Let my ten fingers freeze. I will defy my veins and kill my fear. I will battle my weakness, let the dark envelop me. Love is my lantern and my stars. And when the winter blankets me, your face bidding farewell is summer heat. Let all my limbs turn into clay. Love is my animating breath. Give my skies cloudy faces, which your love clears as it pours an open door. Thank you so much for reading that. Thank you. Yeah, thanks a lot. Especially since you I, I, you read it and as I got a, I got to put in a special request for this poem, which is one of the ones that I really <laughs> liked from reading the collection. So yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. And uh, j- you just want to, I'm sure people could have guessed this, but this is the first collection of her work that is coming out in, in English. Yeah. yeah, it's the first collection devoted solely to her work. Um, there have been previous translations by some really prominent and wonderful people, including uh, Kamal Bulata and um, Salma al-Khadrad Jayusi, who is a major um, right. figure and a poet herself. Um, as well as some translations by Rebecca Carol Johnson in um, a volume, I think it was called 15 Iraqi Poets, that was edited by Dunya Mikhail. Oh, right, at, right. Uh, that came out from New Directions. Mm-hmm, yeah. So, and there's other translations of a few uh, Mala'ika poems in um, the like collection edited by Natalie Handel, that's like Arab women. Yes. Mm -hmm. But um, this is sort of was one of the big motivations for doing this project is that, you know, Malaika is much anthologized, but never, never given her own volume in translation. And it just felt like, um, like it was time and like her status in, in Arabic letters really merited such a collection. So I can't believe it's me, but it's me (laughs) who did it. Right. And yeah, her poems really get to speak to each other instead of only, you know, only to other people's poems and anthologies. And also you have this wonderful introduction. Um, and, and I guess I didn't know that much about her, her life. And she comes across as such a forceful character. I really wanted a whole biography about her actually. Um, a biography about her, her parents and her upbringing and, and how she grew up in uh in 1920s 1930s baghdad um 
what sorts of poets her mother was reading while, you know, reciting while doing housework. If, you know, yeah. maybe, maybe that's apocryphal. That's okay with me. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I included that story. I found that in a bio. So there is a biography in Arabic by another um, very important and tragic Iraqi figure named uh, Hayat Sharara, mm. who um, uh, I'm not sure I'm remembering this correctly, but I believe she committed suicide for sort of po- her political convictions made her life really difficult. But um, anyway, she wrote a, a biography and it's full of a, a possibly apocryphal stories um, in their detail, but um, I think she wrote it by interviewing Malaika in her later years when she was living um, in Cairo. And I think she did a lot of interviews either by phone or um, in person. And I found that story in there about, yeah, her mother, you know, she, she told, she, Malaika told a story about her mother doing like reciting um, all of this classical Arabic poetry while doing housework and, um, you know, how her mother was the one who really instilled a love of um, of the, the tradition and meter and music and all of those things in her um, from a very young age. So, yeah. <laughs> I but it seemed, it's Yeah, I love that story. It seemed like the, the poets that you mentioned in the inter- introduction were mostly sort of 7th through 12th century poets. They weren't contemporary poets that her mother was reciting. No, not at all. Yeah. They, um, I can't, like Bashar ibn Burds, um, you know, there were a bunch, yeah, they were all classical poets. I think like main, probably mainly ones in Abu Tamim's uh, Hamesa collection. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. Um, some of them, a couple of Sufis. Yeah. <laughs> Emily, you, you sort of already touched upon this, that she may have been so far somewhat overlooked, at least in translation, mm. um, maybe not within the world of Arabic letters itself, because she's, she seems to have been a very uh, successful and influential figure. Like, one of the things I, I love about doing this is that I learn about people I knew nothing about and I make new discoveries and she's completely new to me, I have to say. Um, Yay. And of course, <laughs> my, my center of gravity probably in the world of Arabic letters is the Egyptian novel. So an Iraqi poet is kind mm-hmm. of like, you know, out there, but still I, do, I think it shows how, um, maybe how, how, how little she has been discovered in translation. Yeah. Um, and I also wondered about her life and about like what your sense is of what, how, how easy it was to become like, to be a professional women poet in Iraq in the fifties and sixties. Yeah. So I think um, it's, yeah, it's a good question. And I think I, I don't, I don't have a full picture of the time period in my mind kind of because I don't, I don't really specialize in Iraq. That's the secret that um, I need to maybe confess here at the start of the episode. But um, I do think it was easier for her in particular because she came from um, a very well-off family, um, like an upper middle class family of letters. Um, And, you know, her father was an Arabic teacher. Her mother, as we said, was was a poet. 
They lived in the Corroda neighborhood, which was a very, at the time, like a well-to-do neighborhood. And the portrait that I got from the few biographies that I that I read was very much um, of a household, like of letters in that in the old sense of that. So, you know, um, literary parties, poetry competitions, um, re- recitation sessions at holidays. Um, she, you know, Malaika apparently studied the the oud at a young age and would compose her first like poems as sort of like ditties to accompany the oud. So, I think she had, you know, she had the resources to um, enter into this world with. But with that being said, you know, I think it was difficult to write about certain things and in and, and in certain ways. Um, I often think of uh, Fadu Tuqan, actually, when I am thinking of Malaika's poetic career, because we have um, Fadu Tuqan has a, a, a autobiography in two parts. It's called A Mountainous Journey, Rihla Jabaliya, Rihla Saaba. And she talks about how difficult it was to sign her name to poems in the early years because, you know, being from a well-to-do family, it was sort of frowned upon for her to enter public life as as a poet. Um, I didn't get that centered as much from Malaika, but I do think the early poems show um, a reticence to be confessional or personal, if that makes sense. Mm. Although she, to me, she never seems to doubt how her how, that she is a poet, yeah, and no. her, or her vision of herself as as knowing what poetry is and should be. Yes, definitely, yeah. And so that's a that's a major. Thank you for bringing that in because I I don't I, I think it would be easy for people to think that I like love her and love her poetry and think Mm. she's flawless and perfect. And I actually, I'm kind of critical of um, some of her views. So an important thing to know is she was a poet for sure. And she knew she was a poet. She knew what she believed um, Arabic poetry should be. And as a result, her criticism, which by the way, she has uh, four full length volumes of criticism, including a super polemical work called Issues in Contemporary Poetry, where she attacks um, a lot of people either by name or by implication um, for being, for writing sort of in quote unquote incorrect um, verse. And by incorrect, she means um, free verse. So she means that people are not writing in in the meters as she, the Arabic meters as she thought they they should be. So she could be very harsh um, in her criticism. And it, I think it's important to recognize that um, and recognize that that harshness, which I write about this in the introduction, you know, on the one hand, we can be critical of how dismissive she was of some of the younger poets writing um you know, in the 50s and 60s around the time when she was, you know, like, it's important not to cut down people who are trying to do new things, right? But at the same time, I can see where she is coming from, because, you know, I see her love of and, like, sort of fervent clinging to the specificities of the Arabic tradition 
as a kind of anti-colonial nationalism, really, like in this same book, um, Issues in Contemporary Poetry, she has a whole thing about, I'm sick of seeing French and English words in Arabic literary criticism. We need Mm. Arab stuff. We need Arab terms for Arab poetry to show the world that Arabs are as good as, if not better than, you know, all the other poetries that exist in the world. Like Arabic poetry should be respected as Arabic because it's by Arabs for Arabs, right? Which that's a very Arabist in the sort of like pan-Arab Nasser period way to talk about things. But you can see where where that would come from, right? There's like a real love of these specific rhythms and the specific tradition. Yeah, well, if you've got a thousand year tradition, why would you want to Throw that, throw that out with the bathwater. Come on, it's hard to hard to disagree with her a little, you know. Mm. <laughs> but but there's also something. I mean, there's something kind of ir- ironic going on because, or complicated going on because, didn't like she's famous herself as a modernizer of some kind, right? Totally. Like I yes. gather from your introduction that she has this claim to fame that she kind of insisted on, of of being of being a you know, path-breaking, groundbreaking uh, innovator. But mm-hmm. then she decided innovation had gone far enough and basically yeah. <laughs> that was within her own poetry. <laughs> and, 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 and I think this also for me was very useful, the explanation you give of what is called free verse in Arabic, not corresponding to what we think of as yeah. free verse in English. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, maybe maybe you want to explain that difference. She was writing sh- in free verse, but she was criticizing what she called prose poetry. Yeah, exactly. So she, thank you for this question. Um, she pioneered and and constructed her whole reputation of herself as the pioneer of what she called a shir al hur, which, if we were to translate that literally, we could say free verse. Um, but when we do that. It's just, yeah, it's deceiving because in English, free verse is like willy nilly. Uh, you know, there's there's definitely sound patterns and sound play in English free verse, but not in the sense that Melaika meant it. It's um, it's up to the poet basically to to define their own poetry in free verse exactly. in English. But for Melaika and in this in her conception of Esharulhur, which I'll just call it that for now, so we don't get confused. Um, you would take the poet can take the poetic, basically she broke down the Arabic meters into poetic feet. And she said, okay, the traditional Arabic line is in two pieces. We call them hemistics. I don't know where that comes from. I think it might be Greek. A lot of the terminology for Arabic poetics that like we have uh, in English comes from scholars of Greek who, you know, just anyway, (laughs) sorry, (laughs) Orientalism, (laughs) brief history of Orientalism. Um, (laughs) Um, the, the traditional Arabic line, it's in two hemistics, which means there's, it's in two halves and they're separated by what's called the sejura, which is just a little gap in the middle. Each half of the line would be composed of three to four feet. Um, and in Arabic, a foot is a tafila. So these are the units of meaning, basically. And um, it would be like three tafailat, sejura, three tafailat or four and then four and broken by a sejour in the middle. Some of the meters use the same foot, just repeated three or four times, and some of them alternate two different feet, um, you know, 
back and forth across the line. Is this making sense so far? So, so I'm just going to, because I had to look this up. So, and a foot yeah. is literally just like a couple syllables, right? It's yeah. Like, in English, it's two to three. And in Arabic, I gather it's a few more. It's like a unit of syllables. Exactly. Yeah. So in English, we have the I am is the most familiar foot. So, you know, two households, both alike in dignity, <laughs> in fair Verona, where we lay our scene. So each stress, unstress, like both alike, and those are two different, two I am's, right? Um, you also have the dactyl, which is, I think, unstressed, two unstressed followed by a stressed. And then the reverse of that is the anapest, which is stressed followed by two unstressed. These are all terms from Greek. And in English, it's very confusing because um, Greek, um, I'm getting kind of technical here, but I love this stuff. So stop me when it's confusing. <laughs> um, so Greek meters, like Arabic meters, are um, quantitative, which means um, they're based on patterns of long and short vowels. English meters are based on stressed and unstressed um, syllables, so accentual verse. Um, and that's mm. part of what makes translating Mala'eka so, so difficult. And I think it's part of why, you know, Ursula, you might not have heard of her before is because I think people shy away from, um, from, from these poems because so much of why they're important is for the sound you know, and it's not so much, I mean, the meaning is obviously important and interesting, but the, the sound is what sort of drives the, the point home. So, um, right. Yeah, and, so, this, and the yeah. gift of, of combined the, 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 the grace with which the two are conjoined basically. Like exactly. The, yeah. Yeah. I tried to say this in the intro as well, that, that like, there's two stories being told at the same time in, in each of these poems. And the first one is, you know, the story of what's happened, like what's the poem about, like who are the characters, what happens, <laughs> what's the theme. But then there's also a story being told by the sound and so much of her significance is based on exactly these verse forms that she experimented with. Um, so it felt like, so if, you know, if the listeners are wondering when this book comes out, why, why do these poems read like, you know, British romantic uh, odes, you know, it's because I think I wanted to give readers a sense of her, if, if her significance is built on, on this patterning, how could we show that in, in various ways in English? Right. Well, although, although, although um, her significance is also built on the ways in which she sort of reimagines elegy and the attention to which she gives different subjects, is it not? Totally. Yeah. There's more. Yeah. There's definitely more to. I mean, so she's she's known as the pioneer of this Sharlhor form, but you know, l let's not forget that she wrote a lot of verse, a lot of poems in sort of stanzaic, like like different stanzaic forms. And yeah, she also played with um, the tradition of Arabic elegy, which has classically been associated with women, right? Um, for various reasons. Um, some scholars, I don't know, it sort of coalesced in, in the Arabic tradition that women just excelled at the art of elegy. Um, 
because they, you know, supposedly have more feelings and are better at weeping for things that they are sad about. Um, that that reading has largely been debunked. So a lot of scholars have now said, like, you know, no, you know, maybe it's that the tradition decided to tell us that women wrote more elegies than other genres, but actually they were probably composing in every genre. And this is just what got filtered down to us across the centuries. Um, other people, um, Suzanne Stukiewicz, for example, has written about how elegy had a ritual function in, um, in pre-modern and actually in pre-Islamic Arabian culture. So, you know, a death in the tribe creates a liminal space where women who are who traditionally can't speak publicly are called upon to speak to call for for vengeance for the tribe so we have we have basically you know new work telling us why um historically why women have been associated with elegy but why malaika is interesting is because i think um i think she received that story about arab arabic poetry and elegy like she received the story of women excel in this particular um, genre, and she flipped it in a lot of really interesting ways. So the title of the of the collection is "Revolt Against the Sun," and I think I I just really like that poem because it it claims that liminal space, the darkness of night, the stars as friends. Um, elegies were often sort of spoken at night. A famous one by Al Khansa is spoken at night. Um, it sort of just claims all those liminal things as sources of power. And the use of the word thawra, you know, revolt, makes it like, oh, you want to put me in the box of elegy? Okay, I'm here. And like, I'm claiming this box and I'm actually going to like put this genre to new ends. Like, I don't want happiness. Like, keep the sun away from me, you know? Yeah, well, one of the things I really love about it is that I think... To me, I often associate sadness with powerlessness and grief uh -huh. is such a huge part of our lives. And I think in this contemporary world, we often sort of try and really compartmentalize it and keep it away from our the rest of our lives, um, where she gives um, a huge space to grief and it it becomes very it's like, a I don't know, the, the poem cholera, for instance, mm -hmm. um, there's no real there's no real like call to action, but it's like a call to grief, you know, mm -hmm. at, at the end, it's, it's like ringing and it's, um, in its attention to, to grief. Yeah. Should we talk about cholera? I have it yeah, let's here. Talk about cholera. <laughs> yeah. So, th so that's another way that she used it. So a, she sort of claimed the sadness and the grief as a position of strength, which is this sort of counterintuitive thing, as you're saying, Marsha, which like, it's totally spot on. B, she also changed, um, you know, in the tradition, in the classical Arabic tradition, women always were mourning male kinsmen from their tribe. Mm. Um, all of Al Khansa is the most famous pre Islamic, uh, well, she's Mukhadrama, meaning she lived across the pre Islamic and um, early Islamic periods, but she mourned her brother. She mourned, it was mainly her brother. Um, <laughs> But they're all mourning men, and virtually all of Mela'ika's elegies are for women in her family. So she has 
three elegies for her mother. She has a beautiful ode, which is in classical form um, for her, her aunt. And she also has elegies for insignificant and small things. So she has an elegy for an insignificant day, Yom Tevih. Um, she has an elegy for a woman of no importance, which um, I love that poem. And yeah, she also has a, a funeral, a poem called A Funeral for Happiness, where she decides to bury her, her happiness. So I think she's, I think elegy gave her, it was sort of the perfect genre in which to play with, uh, on the one hand, Arab women's poetry and the history of it. On the other hand, British, um, the British romantics sort of obsession with, um, with contemplating death and um, on the third hand, no, but let's imagine you have three hands, um, Arab nationalism. And I think cholera is exactly this, this type of poem where there's a, it's a call to mourning for the poor and the disenfranchised mm. and a sort of like collective act of paying attention. And, um, in another country, in a, in a completely other country. And, and this is the, I mean, this is the poem that she built her whole reputation on, and it became the standard against which she measured up every other poet, every other poet's experimentation and, and generally found them lacking. <laughs> <laughs> I do love that. I mean, in, in that way, she is similar to, in, in my mental construction of Alhansa, who, you know, I'm the greatest poet of poets with breasts and those without breasts or testicles as well. Um, you know, <laughs> well, I didn't and, know that quote. Awesome. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Which may be apocryphal. I don't know, but I like it and I'm keeping it. Um, mm -hmm. And, and you know, um, Al Malaika also, like, I, this is the poem. My poem is the poem against which other poems should be measured. Mm-hmm. And and it's it's interesting to note that um, two things. One, it's actually not a free verse poem. It's not in a shar al if you really look at it, um, which is it's it's actually like a really intricate um, stanza form, and it's but it's regular, which is why it's not in completely shar al So there's I think it's three three or four stanzas of. 13 lines each and each line I don't know how to describe this like the the count of feet in each line of each stanza is the same if that makes sense so it's like if the stanza is 13 lines long it's like line one equals three feet line two equals four feet line three equals five feet and so on so people have pointed out that you know she was like I invented it I'm doing it it's my thing. Um, but actually, you know, this is a different stanzaic form. So that's one thing about cholera. Um, I have my translation here. Um, if you, if you yeah, want please, me to please. read it. Okay. The, before I start it, I'll just say how I approached translating this. So, um, it's in a meter that, um, is called the, tri the tripping meter, al mutadoric. um, but she called it al khabab which was her like sort of modified version of it but she she said that she chose this meter um and she chose this meter because it it has like short short long it's like short short long short short long short short long that's the pattern of the 
of the the sound and she chose it because it was meant to mimic the galloping of horses hooves carrying the carts of the dead through the delta of of Egypt so um yeah so that's how it's it sounds very plodding it mm. like literally plodding in, in arabic so i i chose this um anapestic sort of free anapestic meter in english to try to create that that plotting so anyway okay so here we go um cholera in the night listen to echoed moans as they fall in the depths of the dark in the still on the dead voices rise voices clash sadness flows catches fire echoed cries stuttered cries every heart boils with heat silent hut racked with sobs spirits scream through the dark everywhere voices weep everywhere this is what death has done they are dead they are dead they are dead let the strained nile lament over what death has done in the dawn listen to passing feet as they fall in the still of the dawn watch and hear the procession of tears ten are dead twenty dead countless dead hear the tears hear the pitiful child they are dead, many lost. They are dead, there is no future left. Bodies strewn everywhere, everywhere the bereaved. Not a moment to mourn, not a pause. This is death's handiwork. They are dead, they are dead, they are dead. All humanity suffers the crimes death commits. Cholera lies with corpses in terrible caves. Death becomes medicine for eternity's hush. Cholera lies awake, unavenged, overflowing with hate pouring over the valley's sweet soil, crying out, agitated, insane. It is deaf to the voices that mourn, as its talons leave scars everywhere. In the poor peasant's shack, in the landowner's house, nothing but cries of death pouring out. They are dead, they are dead, they are dead, as death takes its revenge wearing cholera's face. Silence still, nothing left but the trace of Allahu Akbar, as the gravedigger too lies in eternal sleep. There is no one to help. The muezzin is dead. Who will eulogize them? Nothing left now but shuddering sobs. The poor child has no mother, no dad. And tomorrow disease will no doubt snatch him too. Evil cholera, what have you done? You've left nothing in Egypt but sadness and death. They are dead, they are dead, they are dead. This is what death has done, and my heart is in shreds. And... I really love that poem, and I've been, I read it kind of obsessively for a little while. Um, I think in part because we are in a, you know, global pandemic, and so I related, well, maybe I relate everything to that at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the things I really uh, appreciated about it was how it, it narrows down um, the, the, um, the, the farmer is dying, the landowner is dying, the mm -hmm. muezzin is dying, the father is dying, the son is dying. Pretty, you know, pretty soon there's going to be nobody left. And then she turns it back to herself and her grief. And we end on her grief and, um, and, and her grief about this other event. And I, I, I'm not even sure how I feel about it, but, um, but I really, I liked that, that turn and it, it, um, it really resonated with me. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it, it, it also speaks to a thing that I think Marsha, you mentioned on one or two episodes ago of, of Bulak that um, she has, you know, despite a sort of romantic um, 
interest in expressing feelings or like expressing deeply felt feelings. She also has a lot of socially minded um, poetry and she sort of uses these quasi-romantic formal innovations to mourn and, and speak about poverty and, you know, disenfranchisement. So, you know, um, you know, it's so cholera's talons leave scars everywhere in the poor peasant's shack in the landowner's house. It's like, this is a disease that it doesn't care what class you are. It doesn't care if you're a farm laborer or, um, you know, a, a, a landowner, it, it's going everywhere. And yeah, there's sort of a call to, to mourn everybody. And I like what, I like how you describe it. You know, it's, it's narrowing there's nobody left. Like the grave digger too lies right, in eternal right. sleep. You know, right. the muezzin is dead. Like we've lost even the mechanisms that we normally have for mourning. And I think that's what a pandemic, I mean, it just like decimates. Well, it's a sort of like you end up with a scene with no characters left on it. Yeah. And then she, she has to go, she almost has to turn back to talking about herself and how she feels. Cause she's she sort of, you know, told the story of everyone else that she's paying attention to is gone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And then, in fact, that it's also the only poem of hers I had read before because mm-hmm. it must have been shared somewhere in the past six months. <laughs> I mean, it's the one, yeah, it's the one that gets translated. And I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure people have, I, I thought of doing a reading of it on like Twitter or something at the start of this thing. And then, um, just never followed through with that but um yeah it's the one that gets shared because it's the one that she built her reputation on it's it's super famous for doing this formal thing and i think because it's famous for doing this formal thing we don't always think about how smartly constructed it is thematically you know like this narrowing of all the people who are dying and then you know they are dead they are dead they are dead as the refrain in Arabic, it's al-maut, al-maut, al-maut. Mm. And if you think about, like when you read in Arabic, it's it could, because of the elision of like al-maut, 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 it could just go on and on and on and on. Like mm, Right. Yeah. So I tried to have it be horse, horse hooves, you know, in the way that she described hearing about this news. They are dead. They are dead. They are dead. They are dead. It's a little musical, like it's a little jaunty, but I don't know. It, it gets to the horse hooves. <laughs> One of the things I, I th- also thought about this poem is how you say there is not a shift in her work from the romantic to the political. And I don't know who says, who characterizes her work that way. Um, Mm. maybe I just didn't read the introduction closely enough, but that rather throughout she is marrying the romantic Mm -hmm. and, and the political together. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, even in her most romantic, even in her most, you know, quote unquote, political collections, like Le Salat Wa Thawra, which was, um, one of the later, um, collections and, um, um, what is it called? Shajarat al-Qamar, Moon Tree. Mm -hmm. There, you know, those are the collections that have, like just from looking at the titles of the poems, you can tell that they're going to be political, you know, explicitly like a song for the Iraqi Republic. Okay. (laughs) This is going to be a song celebrating 1958. Um, Three communist songs. Those are really interesting actually, because they're sort of 
they play on her reputation as a romantic, dreamy, sad, starry-eyed poet to criticize the Iraqi uh, Communist Party. So you're like, okay, these are clearly explicit uh, political poems, but the Iraqi criticism, the communist, the poems criticizing communism were surprisingly good. I mean, I don't <laughs> necessarily agree with what she was, you know, with her political views, but that they were, I thought like that was a, a very, usually political poems and such explicit ones, I think are hard to yeah. make very good. I thought, and especially like a sarcastic poem mm-hmm. criticizing the communists, but um she yeah she really she really like works on a lot of registers there and it's pretty biting yes it's there were that was though we were a trip to translate um <laughs> but yeah because they are they are songs first of all and that like a lot of her poetry is described she uses all of these words unshuda um like a hymn orneya song Narma or Naramet, melodies. Um, The musical terminology is everywhere in her poetry and in her criticism. And the three communist songs are no different. They are like very explicitly sort of the short, short musical um, lines. But, you know, like the lilies are spies, like all of these beautiful stars. Everything is a spy. That's like the, I guess I could get those, not just like, try to remember them from memory. <laughs> well, yeah, the combination, basically the weaving together of poetical language with political language for sarcastic effects mm-hmm. is what is, is I think a surprise is a pretty original thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, I, 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 I mean, and, and like you say, that's one of several examples. I think you kind of purposely, I mean, you chose poems from all throughout her career and then poems that show her interacting or commenting on historical events or moving through different trends, like sort of her engagement with the world around her throughout her career. Yeah. Um, yeah. And oh, and I, yeah, I was trying to th- those are examples of exactly what you're saying, where the poetic like the sort of explicitly poetical like lilies and twilight and um stars and liquid and lakes and things are interwoven with um spies and informants and red like like personifying the color red and blood and the mashnaka the like the the hangman's gallo gallows the gallows mm-hmm. um but even in these these later collections, there are like, you know, there's greeting to the Iraqi public, but that stands alongside something like a letter to him, which we read in the open, or it stands alongside another of my favorites. And one of the translations that I think came out the best, which is um, a song for the moon, mm, which yeah. I would also love to read if if you want to hear it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. why don't you, please? <laughs> So, uh, like, the backstory for this one is, first of all, it's from Shajarat uh, al-Qamar, which is one of these later, you know, supposedly more political collections. But, you know, you couldn't have a more romantic poem than A Song for the Moon, A, and B. It is in completely um, classical form. So 
I don't remember the exact meter that it's in, but if you look at it on the page, you can see that it's it's what we call amudi. It has the sort of two column structure on the page. And that that was also a translation issue for me. I really wanted to find a way to show in English that, you know, not everything she did was a sharahur, this sort of like not so free, free verse. She also was very like masterfully composed in the in the conventional classical meters. And um a lot of the time the way people do this in translation is they like they make sort of couplets. They make the the single line with its two halves into two different lines, and then they indent the second line. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Like they they like the first half is is fully justified, and then they indent the second half. I really I wanted to see if there was a way to not do that <laughs> because you know the Arabic line doesn't sit like that on the page, and the sejura is not so abrupt in Arabic as it as it is to put like an indented second half of the line in English. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. I was looking for forms of like long lines in English that I could use. And one of the things I came across is uh, a form called the 14er, also known as the Poulter's measure, um, because it has seven um, stressed syllables. Uh, in in a single line so it's sort of like iambic pentameter but plus plus two um so and i discovered that that was much loved by william blake who i'm pretty sure malaika liked so for this uh song for the moon i experimented with that form and then the images were so like specific like really interesting collocations and combinations of metaphors and figures that I didn't want to make it rhyme because when I tried to do that, it just, it lost too much. So, so that's the explanation. Okay. <laughs> get to, get to the poetry drumster. All right. Um, <laughs> so this is a song for the moon. Uh, should I read some in Arabic? Yeah, sure. Give us a taste. I'll give you a quick taste. I'll give you one stanza in Arabic and then I'll flip over. Okay. أغنية للقمر كأس حليب مثلج طرفي أم جدول سائل من صدفي أم غسق أبيض يسيل على خدود ليل معطر الصدفي أم أم حق عطر ملون خدل يقتر شهدا لكل مغترفي أم أنت خد مزنبق أرج ينعس فوق الأعشاب والسعف ما أنت دورق الضياء ويا كواكبا في الظلام منصهرا يا قبلا سوسنية سقبت شهدا مصفا في ليلة عطرة يا مخبأ للجمال يا حزما من زنبق في السماء منعصرا ويا شفاها من الضياء دنت تمسح وجه العرائش النضرا يا بركة العطر والنعومة يا سلة فل في الأفق منحدرا Oh, it's a tough one. معلش. <laughs> All right. Um, here's the English. A song for the moon. 
sumptuous glass of chilly milk or flowing stream of pearl, white twilight painted on the cheeks of a sweet-smelling night, a colored jar of musk dripping honey with every scoop, or fragrant lily-white cheeks sleeping on cool, dewy grass. What are you, carafe leaking light, stars melting into dark, lily of valley kisses, honey poured in pitch-black night? Refuge of beauty, bundled blooms clutched in the sky's soft hands, lips made of light come down to kiss the verdant face of land, a lake of supple jasmine poured out from the firmament. You are the lover's boat, you carry them on languid seas, on feathered wakeful wings that spread the path of love with hope. You are a spring pouring out sleep on eyelids soft with cares, a cupbearer for dreaming eyes, a glass of druggy sleep. You are a finger scattering songs, a hand caressing wounds, an island hung in darkness, its color presaging dawn, floating above a fragrant stream with magic starlit banks, light frozen on its muddy edge, silk cradle, crystal trove. Your shame's repentance and love's sail, colorful and soft-featured. Your night's regret, you make amends for tornadoes and clouds. Melt bits of beams and dreams in night and drown our roofs in silver. Shake off your wings in skies stained with color like butterflies. Without you, shadows would not dance. The irises' tender cups could not be chilled. You wooed our dreams and nursed us beam by beam. Small aperture of dawn inside a darkness of fatigue. Stay as you are, a secret world our souls can't comprehend. Weaver of poetry's remnants in worlds of darkened mirrors. You make each song mellifluous by shimmering in its folds. You give music its flavor, pulsing meter through its curves. Stay as the fantasies sustaining life, love, poems, God. Can I ask you a question? Why did you um, want to do it as a dual language collection? Um, actually, that was Saki's idea. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I I mean, I'm happy that it's dual language. Um you know, as as always, when it's a dual language poetic translation, I am worried about it coming out because these are not literal translations. So when you look at a line on one on the in the Arabic, you know, sometimes I break the line in a different place. Sometimes I switch lines around to make things work. Um, and I do those things because I know that Malaika was doing them too. I mean, when you read some of these works, you can tell she's, she's developing images to make the rhyme work, or she's adding pieces of meaning to make the rhythm work. So I feel authorized to, to do these things. Right. Right. Yeah, no, I, I love, um, you know, poems together in three languages or four languages, but I know I've mm -hmm. talked to an, another, uh, Fedi Judah has said that, you know, you know, when you do have books in a, in a bilingual sort of either facing page or, or dual language collection, people often will look, oh, that's not what it says, you know, that that will be their sort of immediate <laughs> yeah. reaction. I know. I, I have know. that thought too, that as a translator, it's, it's, it's really, um, putting yourself out yeah. there or to the t exposing yourself more than than a traditional edition but i i think though as you you say in your very humble introduction because i think that a lot of the translations i mean they read 
very beautifully. Um, But you say that you've, you know, this is one translation and, and in some cases perhaps it's, it, it's also starting off point for other people to think about how they would translate something to see the two versions side by side. And then for a lot of people, it's just, if you can read both languages, it's kind of a gift to, to get both versions at once. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, I, I firmly believe that, you know, like Borges taught us, everything is a draft. Like there is no final. We're just endlessly drafting. And in fact, like if people were to retranslate and do more with this, like, ahlan wa sahlan, welcome, please do that. You know, I, I'm, I'm a firm believer in like, we're all translating each other and retranslations are, are always welcome. And, and yeah, like some of these turned out better than others. And I'm, I'm fine with that because the, the historical interest of some poems necessitated their inclusion, even if, you know, they're not the best, most beautiful, gorgeous poems ever. Um, so that's one reason. And, and another thing that I'm happy about with this being bilingual is that a lot, this project really started when I, I sat down to teach my course, um, women's writing in the Arab world. And I was mm. like, okay, let's get to the poets, everybody. Like, yeah, the, the Arab women poets, let's look at them. And, and I just, I was so shocked that there wasn't a book of Malaika's poetry. And, and there were so many poems of hers that I wanted to give the students that, that didn't exist in translation. And then when they were in translation, you know, I'm trying to convey the importance of this poet as based on her formal innovations and all the things she did with music. And so few of the translations, with a few exceptions, but so few of them actually did anything regular with meter that it felt like. So, so I wanted it, I wanted a book that I personally could teach and having the Arabic there together with the English, I think is cool for, um, for students, students of Arabic, whoever they may be, you know, whether they're, in university or or just or beyond so or floating I'm, around I'm, in the world <laughs> exactly yeah doing doing their duolingos or i don't know whatever H- however you're studying arabic you can look at these but they're they're not literal translations so you know well i i mean personally you're that's more my certainly when it comes to translating poetry i i not only expect but almost demand that people take liberties i don't think it works otherwise and and i'm also more of the school of recreating the effect Mm. Uh, like i i'm less of the literalist uh you know give this you know a remind people that this is a translated text and a foreign text and so on Mm -hmm. with the and and more of the no you know do your best to create an experience that is you know somehow an echo of the original yeah you know and and feel free like it's it's a I think you have to give yourself some freedom yeah I'm 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 a hundred percent there, and especially I think it project to project it varies. Like I I see a place for really literal translation. Like you know, it is helpful to a student of Arabic to ha- to have like I always think of um, A. J. Arbery, who's an old school British um, mm. Arabic scholar. 
um, has a collection of pre it's like, I think it's called the primer on Arabic poetry. Right. And it's everything. It's like, it's got a Mu'alaqa in there. It's got Al-Khansa. It's got Abu Tamam. It's got Al-Bukhtari. And it is just his literal, it's facing page English Arabic, but it's his literal translations of the, of the Arabic. And I think there is a place for that as, you know, as he calls it, a quote unquote, a primer for students, right? Like it can be good to have a literal translation if that's what you, if, if it's for students, but with somebody like Malaika, who, you know, I think the, the world beyond the ivory tower of the academy is interested in and should be interested in. It's important to show, yeah, to give, as you're saying, like the experience of, of what it's like to listen to a reading of her poetry um, in Arabic. And the other thing is, English is so mutable. I mean, the, you know, <laughs> we can do things with the music here. It's not, um, we don't have to feel like we're missing out or impoverished because we're, we're working with a, an English translation. Like all of these are old school poetic forms. I mean, the Poulter's measure, like, come on. <laughs> But, um, but they, you know, they can still, they can still do things. And I think if you like with song for the moon, I just, I tried to keep everything, um, not colloquial cause it's not colloquial, but like not old, not ye oldy English, you know? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I had sort of another to take us in a somewhat different direction. So you you end your introduction with those two photos from Shair of yeah. her with other poets. And it made me wonder about which poems, what, which poets she championed. I mean, in your introduction, you talk a lot about her um, disagreements with other poets. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in those photos, she looks pretty collegial with the other poets. So yeah. Um, I just wanted to know why you ended with that photo and sort of which poets she was championing in her criticism. Yeah, so she definitely, um, oh gosh, I'll have, I would have to look a little more carefully at my notes about Qadaya because some of the poets that she really likes are Iraqi poets who, again, I'm full disclosure, I'm not like I mainly work on Egypt and the Egyptian novel. So like this, so the poets that she mentions from Iraq, I hadn't, um, some of them I hadn't heard of and they definitely aren't in English. Um, she did like uh, Fadwa Tuqan very much. Mm, mm, okay. And she, I'm not sure that she, I mean, she did, I, she didn't champion her. That's a bit of strong language, but she does cite some of Tuqan's work as, example like this this is good sharhor this is good free verse as i would as i would define it um so yeah there's that i mainly wanted to incorporate those two photos because first of all a lot of the images of because she lived quite a long time and um because a lot of the writing on her work um, in Arabic tended to be like retrospective. So it comes out in the nineties when she's still alive, but not so much, um, producing, um, writing anymore. A lot of the images that circulate are her as an older woman or solo or these sort of glamour shots from, <laughs> from the golden days in, in Baghdad. And I just, I liked those poems because I liked 
that she was smiling. I liked that she was in a group and the two of them next to each other was just so interesting to me because I was imagining the circumstance of the, of the photographer, like, okay, we just did a reading or, you know, we just had our poetry evening, like everybody gather on the couch. Right. Mm. So they gather all the men and the women together and they're all sort of like laughing. A couple of them are smoking. They're all in their smart sort of like fifties suits. And then Right next to that, there was a picture of, okay, now it's only the women. And, you know, it puts them separately, but they're in the, in that photo, they're kind of, they're not posing as if for a glamour shot. A couple of them are like reaching across the laps of the others and like talking to each other and they're all laughing. And I just loved that. Like, it felt to me like exactly the kind of just like small resistance to being pigeonholed as like Arab women poets, you know, of just like, yeah, yeah, we'll sit on the couch, but like, we're going to laugh at the, at this premise. I mean, I know I'm reading into it completely, but it just like, <laughs> it's okay. Me- we love, we love reading into things. That's what we do. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And she, she looks really happy and everybody just looks happy. And it's almost like they're laughing at the premise of like, you put us on the couch to be the women poets, but like, we're just here doing our thing. Now, you know? <laughs> now we're going to ignore you and tell each other secrets and jokes. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. you. I love that you came up with that story for that picture. I mean, I, I love that. I really do. I'm always going to have that now when I see it. Yeah. Um. Well, you, you, you read from the, poem about the moon and it made me think of course of its kind of opposite or the sort of title poem of the book which is opposed to this loving ode to the moon is this kind of uh very adversarial um declaration to the sun yeah and i i wonder if maybe we should certainly read from that yeah. Um, to, 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 to close out and, mm-hmm. and maybe before, before we do that, like set it up a little bit, because I think like you said quite earlier in the episode, there's a lot of really cool, I think, ways in which she inverts expectations in this poem. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. So this poem is, uh, let's see, I'll set it up in a couple of ways. I'll give a little, like, history publishing context. And then I will give a little, like speaking of reading into things, like just some of my readings into it. Um, so it's from a collection called uh, which I have translated as um, the woman in love with night. Um, and it, the collection is from 1947. So it precedes her more famous collection, which is from 49. Um, Shrapnel and Ash. And this this collection, Woman in Love with Night, is there are no free verse poems in here. So they're all either in conventional meters or they're in her some of her like special strophic uh forms that she that she developed, which it's interesting that this sort of extremely defiant poem would be in such um conventional form, if that makes sense. So it's it's more the the tone and the content and the, the playing on tradition that makes this a defiant poem, but actually the 
the form and the meter of it are quite um quite conventional which Hmm. um which is pretty interesting and um it's it's pretty long so i can definitely read the most of the english but there's a few stanzas and a few images that really um stand out to me one of which is and i write about these also in the introduction she talks about you know embracing the night it it to me the whole poem is sort of like oh so these are all of the tropes associated with with women in the arabic poetic tradition okay those are my tropes i'm going to take them and turn them into a sort of defiant position um the sadness the nighttime the lamenting the emotion all of these things exactly exactly and, but they and, and they're going to become an act of individual rebellion as opposed to like social conforming yeah exactly and so she even says um when she talks about the stars um she she refers to them as sadiqat so like like friends but it's you know she refers to them in that way and then throughout um they are the verbs associ- associated with the stars are conjugated as though they're feminine human plurals which is just a convention of poetry like it's fine to have a um a, a non-human feminine and conjugate it like a human feminine but to me it, it it seems like a choice to talk about stars as though they were you know your female friends so that's that's one image that really um stands out from this poem f- for me um yeah and i just also found myself wondering like what what is the sun in the poem i mean yeah i realized that she's been betrayed by it kind of and rejects it and it i mean there doesn't have to be an answer but you sort of wonder what is this uh everyday you know bright reality or something that somehow she doesn't want yeah that's a good question. I guess I didn't think about that that much. I mean, I think it's the idea. Part of it is the exposure. So, mm. you know, the idea that everything should should be laid bare and open and expo- exactly exposed to for everyone to see. To me, also, it feels like the pressure to be happy, mm. um, which I think is a gendered pressure also. <laughs> it's that like you know, you'd look much better if you smiled. It's like, well, maybe I don't want to look better. <laughs> or, or to, or to like or admire what you're supposed to, because there's this kind of reject, right? Like she's supposed to like the sun and the day and, and yeah, she's sort of turning her back on that. Yeah. It's a very interesting poem. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's kind of, I hadn't thought super deeply about the sun, but I think it is yeah, it's all the pressures to be to be happy and and the idea that somehow if you're happy um you're 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 better and off. Visible and visible, yeah. right? Uh, mm-hmm. I mean we talk a lot about that, right? These days about how you conforming to what other how other people see you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Your, your reputation really like. Right. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Well, um, let's read. Why don't you read a? Co- I mean, at least a portion of it, and maybe we'll maybe we'll close off here. Um, maybe we'll say thank you and goodbye before, and we'll we'll end with the with the poem. Sounds good to me. I love ending <laughs> right. with the poem. All right. So just a reminder that this book is a Revolt Against the Sun is coming out from Saki Books this month, October 2020, in the UK and in the US in January 2021. And thank you so much for joining us, Emily. This was really a pleasure. And like I said, a great discovery for myself personally. Yeah, thank you for having me and happy to reveal and 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 share. <laughs> So I'll give a I'll give uh I'll give a couple stanzas in Arabic and then I'll switch to my English. How's that? Sounds good. Okay. Thawra ala shams, hadiya ila mutamaridin. Waqafat amama shamsi sarakhatan biha. Ya shamsu, mithluki qalbi mutamaridu, qalbi alladhi jarafa alhayata shababuhu wa saqa an-nujuma diya'uhu almutajaddidu. Mahlan ولا يخدعك حزن حائر في مقلتي ودمعة تتنهد فالحزن صورة ثورتي وتمردي تحت الليالي والألوهة تشهد مهلا ولا يخدعك حزن ملامحي وشحوب لوني وارتعاش عواطفي وإذا لمحت على جبيني حيرتي وسطور حزن الشاعري الجارف فهو شعور يثير في نفس الأسى والدمع في حول الحياة العاصف وهي نبوة لم تطر فتمردت بالحزن في وجه الحياة الكاسف Revolt against the sun, a gift to the rebels She stood before the sun, screaming out loud, O sun, my rebel's heart is just like you. While young, it washed away much of my life. Its lights quenched the star's thirst, ever renewed. Careful, don't let the sadness in my eyes or these copious tears deceive your sight. This sadness is the form of my revolt, to which the gods bear witness every night. Careful, don't be deceived by my pale skin, these quivering emotions, this dark frown. If you see indecision or the lines of fierce poetic sadness on my brow, know that it's feeling causing my soul's grief and tears at life's terror. It's prophecy that failed to fly but stood up to resist a life of sadness and melancholy. My lips are fastened shut over their pain. My eyes are thirsty for sweet drops of dew. The evening left its shadow on my brow and mornings killed off all my pleas to you. I came to pour out my uncertainty in nature amid fragrances and shade. But you, sun, mocked my sadness and my tears and laughed from up above at all my pain. Even you, sun, alas, what misery. You were the one I yearned for in my dreams. You were the one whose name I once revered, singing the praises of your smiling beams. You were the one I once held sacred and idolized as a refuge from all pain. But now, crusher of dreams, melancholy, darkness, and shadows are all that remain. I will shatter the idol that I built to you out of my love for radiance, and turn my eyes away from your bright light, your nothing but a ghost, splendor's pretense. I'll build a heaven out of hidden hopes and live without your luminosity. 
We dreamers know that we hold within our souls divine secrets, a lost eternity. Do not spread out your beams over my grove. You rise for other than my poet's heart. Your light no longer stirs feelings in me. The night stars now inspire all my art. They are the friends who guard me in the dark. They understand the feelings that ignite my spirit. They extend thin silver threads to guide my eyes through the enchanted night. Night is life's melody, its poetry. Here gods of beauty roam to their content. Here uninhibited souls fly about and spirits hover in the firmament. How often I have wandered to forget life's gloomy sorrows in the evening's dark. Upon my lips a divine melody recited by a caravan of stars. How often I have watched stars as they pass, letting the twilight tune my incantations, and watched the moon bidding the night goodbye and roamed the valleys of imagination. The silence sends a shiver through my spine beneath the evening's dome so still and dark. Light dances painting on my eyelids with the dreamy palette of a peaceful heart. And as for you, O oh sun, what can I say? What can my feelings hope to find in you? Don't be surprised that I'm in love with night, goddess of cruel flames that melt us through. You rend our dreams on the horizon line. You decimate what we build in the dark. You shatter magic visions, ghostly dreams, and break the silence in a poet's heart. All of your dancing lights look pale, O oh sun, compared to my resistance and its fire. Your mad flames can't tear up my melody so long as my hands grasp this singing lyre. And when you flood the earth, remember this, my temple has no room for your cruel light. I aim to bury the past you revealed and live beneath the canopy of night. Mm-hmm.